What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. Jessica here. I'm joined today by Dr. Cheryl Cookie. She is a co-author of the excellent book, No Slam Dunk, Gender, Sport, and the Unevenness of Social Change. Most importantly, for the conversation you're about to hear, Dr. Cookie is one of the lead researchers on a three decades long study into the amount of space and the kind of reporting women's sports gets on television. Spoiler alert, it's not great, any of it. The latest version of the study was recently released in the journal Communication and Sport, and it's available to anyone, no paywall involved. We will share a link to it in our show notes. I'm very excited to have Dr. Cheryl Cookie on Burn It All Down to talk about her work. Cheryl, please tell our listeners who you are and what you do. My name is Cheryl Cookie. I'm a professor of American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Purdue University. Uh, I've study, uh, teach, and do research on the intersections of gender, sport, culture, race, media. uh, And um, I'm just, I'm grateful to be here today. How did you get into that topic? Because as we're going to talk about, like, you've been doing this for decades now. So like, how did you first get into this? Like, how did you end up in this work? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'll I'll try to keep this short for the listeners. it really was just sort of by accident. Um, I'm, I don't, although I could uh, identify as an athlete, I played a lot of sports growing up as a kid. Um, and I think was good enough to get by, um, and, and do a number of different sports, but not incredibly skilled to really excel at any one. Uh, and so I think, you know, kind of you hit that, that, that works when you're in like elementary school and junior high, Uh but then once you get to high school, it's sort of like the, the stakes are raised a little bit more. And, and um, right. I was on the gymnastics team freshman year, um, dropped out uh, in a large part because I just didn't really see a whole lot of support either um, uh, from my family. And, and that wasn't like they weren't unsupportive, that just sports weren't really a part of my parents' experiences growing up. Um, uh, my, my peer group, the culture, um, I didn't really get a whole lot of messages that really valued uh, what I was doing. Um, and in fact, it seemed like the the girls in my high school that did play sports, particularly those that were in uh, non-feminine or best ma- masculine sports, um, were often like ostracized and made fun of. And, you know, that, that those messages really impacted me, unfortunately. And so I dropped out. Um, so how does somebody who drops out of sport then become, <laughs> then become, you know, devoted to sports such that it's their entire career. Um, you know, I've always kind of enjoyed sports. I've been a fan of sports. Sports fandom has been a part of, of my family in different ways. My great, or I'm sorry, my grandfather uh, was a Cubs fan. So he and I would, you know, kind of sit on the porch in the summers and, and listen to, to ball games. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, undergraduate for me was very um, different in the sense that I was a first generation college student. 
Um, not a lot of people in my family really went to college other than a cousin or two. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I was kind of working my way through, uh, thought I'd be pre-med, thought I'd go into physical therapy. So I was taking all these kinesiology classes that are focused on sport and human movement. Um, and Hmm. kind of found my way into that after doing about 400 hours of clinical work in a PT clinic, realized that wasn't for me. So, um, but I love to learn. I love to do research. Uh, found myself in graduate school because I didn't really have any job, real job prospects after undergrad and uh, came to know sociology as a field, realized that there were people that were studying sport from a sociocultural perspective. And um, I just look at you now. Yeah, yeah. The rest <laughs> is history, I, su- I suppose, as they say. So Cheryl, you have been tracking and analyzing, this is your wording, so I'm just copying yeah. you. So you've been tracking and analyzing the quantity and quality of coverage of women's and men's sports and televised news and highlight shows for 30 years now. Yeah. And that work is foundational to how we understand the massive underrepresentation of women's sports and athletes within sports media. Anyone listening to this who cares about women's sports, you've heard the 4% uh, number, and I like that's your number. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I was wondering this 30 year study, the longitudinal, I've practiced that word, the longitudinal study across decades. How did this project get started? That's a great question. Um, the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles, which was a, a nonprofit entity that was formed uh, out of the proceeds of the 1984 Olympics held a conference in the late 80s or, you know, somewhere around there. Um, And and the conference attendees were mostly industry people, journalists. Uh, And at one of the sessions at the conference, um, the speakers talked about uh, the, the racism and sexism in sport media. After the presentation, the audience, um, again, many of whom were, were journalists and and broadcasters, um, challenge the speaker in saying that, well, you know, the the examples that you gave, these are just anecdotes. You're kind of cherry picking examples to make us look bad. Um, You know, this certainly Mm. is, is not characteristic of what we do. And in fact, you know, that, that this is, these are anomalies um, and this is not indicative of, of, of sport media. And so the amateur athletic foundation uh, commissioned uh, Mike Messner, who's my co-author on the study and Margaret Carlisle Duncan, um, who was uh, one of the original collaborators in the project and who are also in the audience that day and asked them, hey, can you help us out? Can we get some research to find out if, in fact, you know, are these really just sort of the extreme examples or, or is this more indicative of so- a larger issue? Help us out here. And so that's how the study got started. Um, I came in in 1999 as a research assistant for Mike when I was his graduate student at USC. Uh, and then uh, sometime around the mid 2000s, Margaret Carlisle Duncan retired and she was sort of transitioning um, off. And I happened to call Mike because Mike and I still kept in touch and said, hey, you know what? I know like timing wise, like the um, you guys should be gearing up for the next iteration of the study. Like what's going on or, you know, fill me mm-hmm. in on the details. And he's like, oh, I don't know. You know, Margaret's retiring. She's kind of stepping back from research I'm just not sure if I, I have it in me or bandwidth. I can't remember the exact language that he used. And, and I said, no, Mike, this is this is an important study. Like, you, you, you have to do this. I said, you know, if I can be so bold, like, I will volunteer to help out. Um, and I'd, I'd love to collaborate with you on it. And so I kind of 
um, you, you know, elbowed your way in there. Yeah, I elbowed my way, way in. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of became the, the the starting quarterback, and and Mike now sits on the sidelines and and helps calls plays, but um, or, or whatever the appropriate sport metaphor might be. Um, and so uh, in 2009, I kind of took on that lead role, um, and we've we've been kind of at it uh, since. Yeah, and like I said, that four percent number I think is probably the most famous part mm-hmm. of this continual study. Um, and I want to say like you talking about it, was this indicative, was this anecdotal, like, and you have found that it is systemic, right? And mm-hmm. this, this is numbers sort of like the rallying cry of that, the systemic issues. And I think it's maybe one of the most depressing things about the study. And uh, the fact that there's been almost no change in this number across these three decades and we're talking about the coverage of women's sports on tv news and like espn sports center yeah so i want to be really clear um with with this particular study we are looking at televised uh news and highlight shows and we added on in the 2019 data collection online daily newsletters and social media accounts of those same media outlets that we look at in the televised part of the study, right? And so I do think what is surprising about uh, the study is the fact that in over 30 years, again, looking at that specific, those media outlets uh, and the specific timeframes that we examine, that there has been relatively little change. And it's it's varied over time, right? So we got uh, a spike up to about 8% in 1999. It dropped back down. It was as low as like 32 um, or around there, um, the last iteration, and it has kind of jumped, jumped up, quote unquote, jumped up to about five percent, um, which is where we started in 1989. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about the five percent. Well, it's interesting because we're talking. So the data for this latest one is 2019, mm-hmm. and even though it feels like last year, that two years ago now, the Women's World Cup happened, and so you say like everything is skewed here. Like, in fact, if you remove the Women's World Cup coverage, we get down into the 3%. Mm-hmm. We're talking about like all of the sports coverage that you guys looked at, 3%. If if you take out the Women's World Cup because you address the fact that nationalism and there's a way that that forces stories forward. But I just feel like this is such a, I don't even know if you can answer this question, but I just feel like, is there no hope here? Like, I feel like it, this is so good to have this data and we're all out here yelling 4% all the time. And, and it, True, but I just like when I read this last night, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah, like we are just in the late eighties. Like, like how can we, how can it be the same? Yeah, I think I mean that's that's the million dollar question, right? I think um, there there's a number of of things that we point to, uh, you know, maybe why it's it's the same. Um, in some cases, with the local affiliates, it's the same broadcasters from like. 20, 25, 30 years ago, right? So, I mean, yeah. in, in that sense, right? Um, you know, I think I think there's a way that at least within these kind of legacy media spaces, um, so we're talking about kind of the big media, sport media outlets like SportsCenter, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, um, you know, the, the major networks, the major news media outlets. Um, I, I, I think there's a way that the logics by which those organizations operate are so deeply entrenched in a particular worldview that is so outdated and also so resistant to empirical evidence that would suggest 
that there actually is a market for women's sports, that there actually is an audience for women's sports, that there actually is interest in watching and following and consuming um, women's sports and, and knowing about sports athletes. Uh, and, and it's, it, it's sort of that those, those organizations are just sort of um, immune or kind of resistant to taking that in. And for me, I think that speaks to how deeply rooted sexism is in those particular organizations and institutions, such that even if you are able to include more women, right, or even as as uh, commentators, as broadcasters, which I know ESPN likes to sort of champion its its gender diversity, which relatively speaking, um, according to Richard Lapchick's um, it's something, right? It's yeah, it is something. Yeah, yeah. It's it skews all his data. Like if you take ESPN out of his data, then like it, everything gets way worse. They actually are, all things considered, doing all right. <laughs> they're doing all right. They're doing all right. But what's interesting is that they're, um, and we didn't necessarily systematically measure this, but um, in terms of the qualitative analyses, one of the things that I was noticing is that there, the it wasn't as if oh now there's a woman who's the, the anchor or a woman who's the commentator and we're getting a much different view um, or we're getting different types of, of sports covered or we're getting a different kind of delivery and excitement. It's like, no, this is Ashley Brewer, who's now who was at um, KABC. And right. then I think last I checked, she's now at ESPN. Um, you know, she's she's doing the same type of uh kind of stylistic delivery and presentation that the the male anchors were doing. And, and she was covering, you know, men's sports and, and talking about baseball before it even started. So I, and again, I, I don't think the commentators themselves have a lot of decisions or I'm sorry, sorry, a lot of power um, in, in terms of maybe setting the agenda of what gets, gets covered. But um, you know, certainly I think this idea that, that if we bring more women in, there's going to be some change. Um, you know, when you asked, uh, Jessica, you know, is there hope? And I think when I look at our data and I look at our study, I just, you know, kind of, it's, it's super depressing. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it's surprising yet at the same time, I'm not surprised. Yeah. It feels that way. Where I find hope as a researcher and where I find hope as a, a fan of women's sports and, and an advocate for gender equality is, and I hate to say this, but I'm going to plug your, your show, right? I find it in, I find it in um, this podcast. I find it in the work that you um, and your, your co-anchors are doing um, with respect to, to writing about sports from a feminist perspective to, to um, amplifying um, women athletes and, and, and stories about women's sports. Um, I look to all the diversity in terms of um, maybe what we would call like niche media spaces, right? So um, podcasts and blogs and, um, you know, those kinds of spaces where, um, you know, journalists and oftentimes, you know, kind of younger women journalists are, um, you know, pushing against that kind of business logics that I was um, talking about earlier and kind of pushing against that, that entrenched uh, sexism um, to talk about women's sports in, in different ways. The other thing that gives me hope too and I'm still not sure how I feel about this. We could talk more about this or we can move on. Um, uh, Deloitte and a couple of other um, entities, mm -hmm. I, you saw the report, the forecasting on, on the, the untapped potential market for women's sports. Yeah, there's a lot of money. There's there. a yeah. lot of money to be made um, in, in women's sports. And I, I think the... Um, 
there's going to be a sea change as a result of that, or at least I'm, I'm hoping there will be. And if there's not, then I think, then I feel like all, all will be lost. But at the same time, you know, I feel somewhat ambivalent about using the kind of commercial economic um, argument to, to advocate for women's sports. I, I, I haven't quite worked out why I have that ambivalence, but I do. And um, I, I, you know, money might help, but I don't think it solves the problem. And the, the thing that I worry about is that then what happens when that market is potential is tapped, you know, or the well is run dry. Do we go back to doing the same thing? Yeah. And I think your study, part of what your study shows is that even if you present this kind of data, the, like you said before, people are resistant to it. So, you know, I feel that ambivalence because it should be about more than that. Like it shouldn't take that, right? Like is, is how I feel. And it's it's interesting to hear you talk about this depressing part of the study because mm-hmm. all I was like, yeah, this is why we named the show Burn It All Down. Like it does just feel like we got to start from somewhere yeah. new because the old is so like entrenched, as you said. So let's talk about the the most recent study. You did this along with fellow researchers, Latoya Council, Maria Mears, and Michael Messner, as you talked about before. Uh, it's called One and Done, The Long Eclipse of Women's Televised Sports, 1989 to 2019. You published it in the journal Communication and Sports. Let's talk about the title, One and Done. What is the significance of this? Why why are you referring to it in the title? Yeah, that's a great question. Um it, it really came from me doing the qualitative uh, analyses of the, the, the coverage. And um, I, I just found that, that, you know, when you, when you sit and you watch these shows, I mean, this was what I did last summer. Just, it was like back to back, back to back. You can see kind of things, patterns emerge in ways that maybe you wouldn't, if you, you know, once a week watch hmm, sports center or what have you. Right. And so what, what kept kind of, coming up repeatedly was I would get this, there would be this story about a women's sport event. And it was usually, you know, maybe it was a segment on um, the women's basketball tournament. Maybe it was a a segment or two on women's tennis um, in the summer. Um, It was a, it was a segment um, or two on the world cup. And then once that segment was done, women's sports coverage was, was complete. Um, whereas with men's sports, one of the things that we, we noticed was that the, the stories about men's sports would repeat over time and there would be different angles. So for example, um, when we were collecting data, um, Anthony Davis signing to, uh, the LA Lakers was a, was a story. And it was a story, not just that the story itself got repeated, like the same segment, which sometimes that happens, right? But it was, okay, now we're going to talk about Anthony Davis meeting with, you know, so-and-so. And now we're going to talk about Anthony Davis and his press conference. And now we're going to talk about Anthony Davis and some social media exchange that he had with LeBron James or whatever. And now we're going to talk. And so the story about <laughs> uh-huh. Anthony Davis signing to the Lakers gets is a story that's told through multiple lenses over multiple segments, either within the same broadcast, if we're talking about SportsCenter, for example, or across different um, broadcasts, if we're looking at the the local affiliates. Whereas with the women's sports, it was, you know, it was the one segment or the one sport event or the one hmm. topic, and then it moved on, right? So there was, it just so happened that the way we sample, and we have to do this 
in order to be able to make comparisons over time, right? But it just so happened that our sampling dates caught the end of the Women's World Cup, right? So it, it was the day, I think it was, we got the day of the World Cup final and then the day after. And as soon as Monday was over, I think there was maybe once uh, a couple of stories about the parade in New York. Um, and then it was done, right? Done. <laughs> One and done. Yeah. We didn't talk about women's soccer um, af- after that. And, and or, you know, again, if it, if it was, it was, you know, maybe it was a couple of weeks after our study stopped collection and it's a, you know, a, a short segment, but we don't see the kind of um, wall to wall 24 seven coverage of men's sports and especially kind of the men's big three or four we don't just don't see that with Mm -hmm. women's sports right and so there isn't um the analogy that I give is it's like if you if you buy a plant um and you know you only water it once a year it's going to be really hard for that plant to grow right whereas if if you buy a plant (laughs) and you water it I don't know say it needs to be watered once a week you water it once a week um, and you give it fertilizer and you put it in the sunlight and you trim back its leaves and you, um, you know, d- do all the kind of fun stuff with the soil that you can do with plants. And, and um, you know, that, that plant is going to grow. It's going to flourish um, and it's going to sprout out new little baby plants. Um, and, and we just don't see that with women's sports. Did that analogy make sense? I don't know. Does that work? <laughs> yeah, it makes so much sense. You know, obviously, the kind of work that I do is is not part of the study because I write and uh publish and online and stuff like that but it makes me think of I had the story that was big a few years ago and I talked about this on the show a fair amount about girls who play baseball and it took me five months to place the story and it was huge when it landed like it was so huge that nightly news NBC nightly news did their own segment HBO real sports did their own segment like it was a viral success and I knew it the whole time and that's why I pushed really hard to get this out but part of the story is that it got rejected over and over and over again and at an outlet that I won't name because I still write in this world, um, I was told, well, we already wrote about girls who play baseball. And they sent me a link from two years before. Oh, gosh. And it was like, I don't, to this day, it was like, what? what? Uh, and it's that kind of feeling of like, you can't have the same, like with women, if there, one story exists, mm-hmm. then like we are finished here. Like yeah. that. And then also that feeling of, uh, and this just recently happened where a friend was worried because, the story they were going to publish someone else published something similar. And I was like, there can be two, (laughs) like there's enough space for us to have two of these. But, and like you said, with Anthony Davis trade, like there were probably 1 million articles. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with women's sport, we are, the scarcity model is just like so ingrained in us. And so it makes sense that it's reflected up on screen. Yeah. And I I think, I mean, sort of speaking, speaking to that, I mean, I I think that's, unfortunately a reality um and and in some of our data um what was interesting was that you know it's it's soon or not even when it happens right but two weeks before major league baseball starts i mean we were getting like segments on the the local affiliates and on on espn sports center about the start of spring training you know and, and this isn't even you know spring training i mean it's it's nice it's great whatever but i mean it's not the high stakes like and, and so there's all kinds of uh, ways that through the, the, the coverage, right, that you, you communicate to audiences that this is important, this is exciting, the countdown of the start of spring training, um, two weeks left, 10 days left. This is something that we should all be looking forward to. It's like Christmas 
on the calendar if you celebrate Christmas, right? And you're you're checking off the X's on the calendar, just waiting for Santa to come. Um, and and you know, with with women's sports, it the event happens, it may get some coverage. As soon as the event's over, like we we checked off our box, and you don't know what happens afterwards. What happens to these athletes? Where do they go? What are they doing in the off season? What are the important stories? I mean, it's just confined to the, that moment. And then, and what was interesting is with the um, women's tennis coverage, it was actually like once Serena got knocked out of the, the, the tournament, like literally the coverage, there was like no reason to cover women's, the women's tournament. I think it was Wimbledon. Um, and um, yet, yet men's tennis continued to be covered. Um, I think it in part because it was Roger Federer and um, Nadal. That's interesting. Lindsay just the other day was talking about a study that she read a few years ago about how uh, the coverage for women's tennis was either racist, sexist coverage of Serena or no coverage. Like, so you're either invisible within the coverage or you're Serena and you're taking on this intense racist, sexist media all the time. So I'm not surprised at all to hear that. It sounds like there's lots of data. And I mean, that's a pattern that we see um, and we've noted in some of, of, I've noted in some of my research, I think other folks have talked about this as well, is that um, that the, the controversies in women's sports tend to gain a lot of visibility and a lot of attention. This is not to say that the similar controversies in men's sports also do not generate attention. Right. They just get all the other stuff <laughs> and women don't. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, it's within this broader landscape where we get to learn all the things. Um, and in fact, um, you know, I, I think uh, I haven't empirically studied this, but my sense is, I mean, I, I knew more about the um, weight room at the the women's tournament than I did a, really about any of the teams, right? I think what, mm-hmm. what sort of pushed, what was able to kind of push through that sort of glass ceiling um, in, in, in sports coverage to sort of rise to the top. Um, was that the, that conversation? Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And then this isn't to say that having conversations about sexism in sports and, and gender inequality aren't important topics. And I, you know, I applaud the media. Um, for for drawing attention to these issues, and especially, I mean, it, it was really social media um, that I think uh, got on the radar of, of some of the the uh, mainstream sport outlets. But we also then need to keep talking about the tournament. Otherwise, these these kind of moments of inequality are going to persist. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com burn. That's betterhelp.com B-U-R-N. You do have a section in the paper titled March Madness, Still Mostly for Men. And I would guess, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that this was ready for publication well before any of this news broke uh, about all the inequities this year. So, I mean, the inequities that we saw were not, those were, you know, site inequities, the way the testing was done differently. Like, this isn't the media, right? In your pieces about how the media is unequal in its coverage. But I wanted to know, like, do you see this all as related? Like the quality of the tournament for the women and the lack of coverage? Like, are these related to you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, this might get a little bit complicated. And if, if I were in a classroom, I'd probably get out my whiteboard <laughs> all and right. start, start drawing, all right. drawing a diagram. Take me through, Professor. <laughs> if we think about, um, you know, one of the justifications that the NCAA itself gave for the unequal treatment of of the women is the fact that the men generate revenue. Yes. Right? That the men's tournament generates revenue, according to the NCAA, although there's some other evidence to suggest otherwise, the women's tournament loses money. So a big reason why the men's tournament generates revenue is because the NCAA sells the rights to broadcast the tournament to the networks. And so the networks pay millions of dollars um, to, to, to get those rights fees mm. so they can broadcast mm-hmm. the games. The way the contracts work is that the men's NCAA basketball tournament is negotiated separately from the women's tournament, and the women's tournament is packaged with 
all the other NCAA championships. Okay, right? got it. So one thing we can think about is what would it look like if the women's tournament was packaged with the men's hmm. and there was a kind of sharing there. Okay, so now the men's tournament is generating more more revenue because the the networks are willing to pay millions of dollars to the NCAA because they know millions of people are going to watch and tune in, right? So their ratings for these games are going to go up. Hmm. Now they operate under the assumption that the ratings aren't there for the women's, which some evidence suggests otherwise, but we'll table that conversation um, as well, right? So now it's the networks want to pay the money, right? Because they can get the ratings. Why do ratings matter for networks? Ratings matter for networks because advertisers base how much they will pay for commercial time during an event based on, you know, those ratings, right? So that's why um, the Super Bowl, uh, right. you know, those, those networks get, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's, I think it was like 5 million for a 30 second spot. Last time I checked, it's probably even higher than that. Um, I'm not quite sure what the NCAA men's tournament gets for a 30 second uh, commercial slot, but so this all matters, right? Because of the audience piece of this matters, right? And so why do audiences tune in? The NCAA Final Four tournament, the men's tournament, um, and I would say maybe to a certain extent the women's, but the men's tournament for sure is is now I think coming to the level of the Super Bowl, right? Which is this is mm-hmm. this is a cultural event. You it's, can't miss it. You can't miss it. Yeah. And, and and you know this has been for years now, but you know that that um, offices, you know, back in the day before times, right when we all worked in in, in offices or the brackets, the, and the brackets and the pool office pools and everyone's watching the game the shared experience like i watch the super bowl because i want to be able to talk to people about it not because i necessarily care about what's happening we, we did a burn it all down super bowl watch thing right like because it's about that and yeah so the i agree march madness has especially on the men's side has that shared experience that goes along with it and i'm i, I feel like you're gonna tell me that they have investment in making us care this much <laughs> yeah they do right and so so yeah. the, the news the news media and the sport media play a really powerful role in helping us and helping to create for audiences beyond just the viewing experience a, a an exciting um uh atmosphere that surrounds the event that makes it really easy for me as a fan to engage right so mm-hmm. i want to fill out my bracket I wrote an article um, uh, uh, several years ago for uh, a feminist blog, um, the Feminist Wire, me ranting about how difficult it was to, to fill out my bracket. Um, and, and even today, that's, I mean, I think there's been some, some changes and improvements. There's now actually an app for the women's bracket, although I struggled so many times to find it because I feel like ESPN kept moving it in different spaces <laughs> on their smart, uh, smartphone uh, uh, platform or app. Um, even the stories, right? So you 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 tune tune in a sports center, or you you know you kind of log into social media and you see what people are talking about, and if they're talking about the men's sports, right? I I can learn so much about the basket men's basketball season as somebody who's just a either a casual fan or someone who's not a fan of sports at all but wants to be a part of it. I call it osmosis. Yeah, they're like I know more about the I didn't know about the NBA just from existing. I don't watch it. I mm-hmm. have very little interest generally, but I can talk about it on a, yep. like in a pretty good way. Cause, and so I just feel like it must be osmosis that I'm just receiving. Whereas for women's sports, I've curated a very specific social media following, the newsletters that I read. Like I have done a lot of upfront work in order to make that less work now as 
March Madness is happening and we're about to have the draft and and NWSL Mm -hmm. Challenge Cup is coming up. And I know all that because people on my social media feeds are telling me this and I work with women who care a lot about that. But, you know, there's a lot of work involved. Yeah. And I think that's the important that I really want to highlight that, right, that it, it it's labor that fans have to invest to be able to follow women's sports and have a similar kind of experience as a consumer, as a fan, as a spectator. It's a it's a much different kind of labor and investment um, than I love that. I that idea of osmosis. Right. It doesn't take yeah, a lot of comes work. Into your skin. It doesn't take labor. <laughs> yeah. Um, you just yeah. You, you open up your your uh, whatever your social it's media there. feed or what have you. Yeah, it's there. It's there. And again, I think it's not to say that you cannot find information on women's sports. You just have to you have to be willing to do the work, to do the labor, to be committed. And, and there's a, a small segment of, of, of folks that have the ability to do that, um, that kind of work. And then for the, I think the rest of the casual fans that are out there, um, it's just sort of like, eh, you know, I'll, I'll, you either don't know what's happening or you just sort of don't really have the opportunity to find out what's going on. Yeah. So the idea is like, if, the media that you're covering, if they would do a better job, not if it wasn't the one and done, if they were creating the same kind of constant sustained coverage that we see with the men, more people would tune into the women when it came time to negotiate these contracts for these TV stations for or for the coverage of something like March Madness. You could sell them for a lot more. And as soon as you sell them the women for a lot more, everyone becomes more invested. And then the cycle ramps up right uh and it's just so Mm -hmm. hard to break this inertia where we keep screaming i feel like we're all screaming about it all the time um yeah we're slowly getting it was very exciting last weekend for me to go between the two tournaments between on abc and cbs and i was just like wow like the women are on abc the men are on cbs this is incredible uh but it does also feel very strange that it's 2021 and like what a big deal that we're (laughs) We're on ABC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to ask about one other term that comes up in in the study this time, and I think was in previous studies, but uh, gender bland sexism, which is such yes. an interesting idea. Will you tell me what gender bland sexism is? Yeah, so this is a, a kind of a, a concept that we uh, developed, and this was it was originally um, presented in the previous iteration. So Michaela Musto. Uh, was um, uh, the graduate student working with us at the time. And this was was something that she had kind of picked up on in her qualitative analysis. And and, and we developed this concept uh, to talk about the ways, uh, I should backtrack. So we developed this concept uh, borrowing from Edward Bonilla Silva's concept of colorblind racism. And colorblind racism is essentially the ways in which racism operates in society in, in, in more covert ways, right? Um, and, and I won't go in too much into those details, right? So it's not, you know, the explicit, you can't sit, you know, at the front of the bus, um, but it's these more kind of um, implicit covert ways that, that racism uh, manifests. So we, we sort of took that and, and sort of tweaked it to talk about um, not just gender blind sexism, because certainly gender is quite visible 
in sports spaces. It's always visible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the gender bland element is the way in which kind of the bland delivery, flat delivery um, is itself a kind of form of of sexism. Hmm. So in previous iterations of our study, we had advocated for more respectful coverage of women's sports because back then the sexism was quite overt, right? It was you know, a, a story about uh, a naked bungee jumper, a, a woman naked bungee jumper um, that had painted her body with green paint on St. Patrick's Day. It was, um, you know, a trivialization of, of women athletes making fun of them or using them as the object of kind of sexualized humor, humorous sexualization. Really, so when you see those, right, this is quite overt, clearly sexism. Most people can identify it and point to it. So we're advocating more respectful coverage, more respectful coverage. Well, what we found was that um, in, in part due to a lot of changes, which I can talk a little bit more about, um, then the media, uh, at least within our sample, sort of stopped doing the kind of sexualization. We saw that sort of fall out, fall out um, of the, the qualitative analysis. And eventually we got to a point where the ways in which women's sports stories were delivered was in this monotone, flat delivery um, so it wasn't, they weren't sexualizing athletes, but they also weren't infusing in the coverage, the kind of high production values, exciting language, colorful, com like colorful uh, adjectives and, and commentary um, that we saw with the men's. And so it really kind of created this very distinct um, uh, difference mm -hmm. in, in terms of how you, as a viewer, were um, seeing women's sports versus seeing men's sports. And so it's a kind of sexism mm. that operates under the radar. Most people aren't going to pick up on it because it's like, oh, well, they're talking about the sport and they're highlighting the, you know, they're talking about the game and they're showing, you know, a highlight reel or what have you, but it's absent from these other high production values. And so what we, we argued using this concept then is that uh, the message that viewers take away from that is that women's sports is less exciting, or in other words, women's sports is boring. Mm -hmm. And it is that way, not because the production values aren't there because the excitement and the exciting delivery and all that, you know, the bells and whistles are absent, but it gets interpreted or understood or has the potential to get interpreted and understood as women's sports are just less interesting. Um, and therefore we really don't have to focus on, on, on covering them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially because a lot of people who aren't already women's sports fans are, that's going to be their idea of women's sports to begin with. That's like a cultural idea is that women's sports is the boring, inferior version of whatever it is the men are doing. So then if that's reinforced in the coverage, you can see how that would be particularly damaging. Like it's just telling people like it is exactly what you thought it was. Like we have to mm -hmm. report on this, but you yeah. know. That's so interesting. Yeah, the idea that if you're watching this over and over again, you're going to see that comparison in a way that maybe I wouldn't even catch if I was watching. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the kind of exceptions to that were where we did see the high production values, the, the, the investment was in, you know, for example, the, the, um, the coverage of the Women's World Cup finals and, and the aftermath, right, that, that it was it was. You know the the color the the colorful commentary the the graphics the the transitions the interviews the the experts coming in you know Julie Foudy coming in and giving her take on what happened yeah. interviews with the players right all of that so but again and so that's great if we but if we can get that on a more consistent right. basis and not that one and done yeah that national we talked about this a lot on the show the nationalism well you know mm -hmm. trump the sexism 
and it's such a powerful yep. thing. That's why the Olympics are such an interesting uh, media landscape too. So uh, now that we've talked about all this stuff, uh, how do we fix it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I pause because I always love this. Question. I know. And, and um, it's also, it's not necessarily, f- I don't think it's fair. Like as a journalist, I get this, like you can't, like as if I have to have the solution in order to point out the problem. I think that that's that there is something deeply unfair about that. Um, but I do wonder now that you've been doing this for so long, like maybe, maybe a better one was like, if you could just change one thing right now, like what would be the very first thing, <laughs> the mo- like what would be the, yeah. the most important first thing that you would change if you were like the magic wand and. Yeah. I thought, I've thought a lot about this and, and I, you know, I think, um, we have recommendations in previous iterations of the study. So we, in the past, have advocated for um, increased uh, quantity of coverage, right? And I think in our last iteration, we suggested going from, and there was a rationale which we provided in the study, but we suggested going from, you know, the the 3%, um, you know, and, and, and pushing that to 12 or 18%. And it was based on a, you know, kind of a particular rationale. It feels like pie in the sky. One fifth of the coverage yeah, right? feels like twelve percent. Like, yeah, twelve percent even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you know, we had we had um, advocated for uh, not just more women, um, but more people in decision making positions who are invested in women's sports. So hiring people who are invested in covering women's sports with the same kinds of um, uh, with the same quality um, as as men's. Uh, and in, in this iteration of the study, we sort of walk through some of those recommendations and talk about, you know, well, how, how, you know, after five years, even some of those basic things that we had called for didn't really seem to come to fruition. So, you know, after 30 years of, of sort of advocating and recommending, I, I do get, you know, um, somewhat uh, frustrated with that question. And I get that a lot from a, a number of folks, right? People want to know, right? It's, it's, it's kind of Debbie Downer if you're just like, yeah, this sucks. Okay, peace out. Bye. Right. Yeah. No, I, I understand. Yes. I do Debbie Downer work and people are like, well, what's the solution? Yeah, I'm mean, like, well, ask the people in yeah. charge. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I think um, Sarah, Sarah, I love Sarah Ahmed's work and she talks about, you know, the feminist killjoy and the importance of, of the feminist killjoy. So I don't want to, I think there is um, some, uh, some value in a critique. Uh, if I were to say, you know, what, what would I want to see? And I, I thought a lot about this because in anticipating this question coming up and to be honest with you, I think one of the things that I would like to see happen and, and I don't know how it happens. Right. So I'm not going to tell you how <laughs> I will tell you what I think I, I've, I've given up on, I've given up hope that, um, that some of these kind of legacy media outlets are going to change. Um, and in fact, you know, as I sort of walked us through the origin story of the study, um, you know, I was, uh, I failed to mention that in this latest iteration, we included the online and social media coverage in part because the last time the study came out um, back in 2015, one of the responses we got from um, somebody inside uh, the industry was that no one watches Sports Center anymore. No one watches television. No one watches television news. No one watches Sports Center. You need to look online. You need to look at social media. And lo and behold, so we did that. what did you find? And lo and behold, <laughs> yeah, lo and behold, we did that. Lo and behold, I mean, it's it it. They were right. It is better, um, but we're talking, you know, nine percent versus five percent, or ten percent versus you know five or six percent. 
And even that, you guys found that ESPNW skewed everything. Yeah. So if you take ESPNW out of that equation, you, the the numbers are abysmal. Um, and what was what was the issue with the, that was really sad with ESPNW um, was that they their newsletter wasn't a daily newsletter; it was a weekly newsletter. Um, the publication was quite erratic. And in fact, uh, in the middle of our data collection, they stopped publishing the newsletter. Um, oh, wow. So, so the one kind of space within the study that we, we were able to sort of identify some coverage of women's Ugh. sports, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, so I think going back to, to, to your question, right, I, I've given up on the legacy media, right? I, I, I'm sort of like, I, I've, I've talked to you as, as much as I can. <laughs> You're not going to pick your socks up the, off the floor, <laughs> right? Right. right. Um, and so I think I think what we um, what we need to do is we need to start investing in other media spaces. Um, we we need to stop we being you know those of us who are um, you know women's sports advocates, uh, feminists, um, people who care about women's sports, fans of women's sports, women athletes, girl athletes. We need to stop asking the mainstream for access and for inclusion. And we need to start, like you were saying, burn it all down, like create our own spaces, which people have, and we need to start yeah. investing in those spaces. Um, and so, you know, for me, what that looks like is that that's me subscribing to podcasts about women's sports. That's a, that's me. Um, and this is local level changes, right? But that's me signing up for Lindsay Gibbs's um, power plays newsletter um, and investing money in that instead of, you know, renewing my ESPN uh, plus subscription. Um, and, and so I think, and, and this isn't, I don't want to put the onus on fans to do that. Um, but I think we need to shift the conversation away from, and I say this as somebody who did this research, right. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah. I think we need to shift the conversation away from looking at legacy sport media or mainstream sport media, um, and, and start um, um, looking at the spaces where the work is actually being done and try to elevate and amplify um, those spaces and those voices and invest in those spaces and voices. Cheryl, thank you so much for all our, your work, for your time today, for coming on Burn It All Down. This has been wonderful. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work out there on the internets? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the study itself is published um, it's open access, uh, so it's not behind a paywall. So anyone, hopefully, you'll be able to link to the study. Yeah, we'll link. We'll link to it. Um, yep. So they can find me there. Um, I'm also uh, on. I say on Twitter very loosely. Um, at Prof Cookie. Um, I don't post very much. Um, I'm also. Uh, you know, you can find me on the Purdue website. I, I don't social media. That's a whole other story. We can have a conversation about. Um, <laughs> gosh, where else can you find me? Facebook. I don't know. Just you know, Google me. I'm out there. I'm on the She's web. out there. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on Burn It All Down. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. And I'm